Hi, I'm David Reckenberg and I'm the managing partner of QMV Legal, which is a division of the consulting firm QMV Solutions. I'm joined today by Simon Russell, who's the founder of Behavioural Finance Australia, and Lee Johnson, who's consulting practice lead at QMV. We are uh, super interested in the product design and distribution obligations that are described in ASIC consultation paper 325, and they're due to come into effect on uh, 1 October next year. So that's what we are here to talk about today. And just by way of explanation, BFA and QMV have decided to work together to assist our clients to comply with these obligations, or, or perhaps we would say to benefit from these obligations. And we believe that we bring together both specialist behavioural finance knowledge and also specialist superannuation, legal and consulting skills. As a recap, the design and distribution obligations complement ASIC's product intervention powers, and they're intended to promote fairer outcomes uh, for consumers. The key obligations are to identify appropriate target markets for financial products, to maintain effective uh, governance pro processes over the life cycle of financial products, and also to focus on design and distribution of products that are consistent with the objectives, financial situation and needs of consumers in an identified target market. So with that recap, and perhaps starting with Simon, um, Simon, what are your perspectives on the new rules, particularly from this behavioural behavioral finance perspective? My focus, I guess, is specifically on what the behavioural finance research literature, so all the psychology of financial decision making, how does that apply? How does that play into these rules? So, for example, my experience is working with, say, superannuation funds about their product design and, and the way they engage with their members. And what that shows is that quite often from the research, well, people don't necessarily make fully rational choices. They're impacted by how those choices are presented, by information overload. They rely on defaults, all this sort of stuff. And actually, that links quite nicely in with DDO because you look at what where ASIC is going and read their regulatory guide, their consultation paper, and a lot of that plays into their perspective. You can't rely on disclosure. You can't rely on clients' understanding. Well, sometimes you can, but not nearly as much as we have historically. And so I guess my perspective is how can we better use that research in our response to DDO and in member engagement more generally? Sure, sure. Um, and I should say my um, my involvement with product departments uh, has been pretty extensive. And from my perspective, the bit I'm kind of really interested in is uh, improving the governance arrangements around product design. Um, because I kind of think in some organisations, um, products perhaps not even given the 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 importance and the priority that it that it um, that it ought to have in organizations and so I think that governance might also feed into helping those behavioral outcomes as well what about what about your perspective Lee, Lee from an operational perspective with a purely operational lens you know on the assumption that um, you've got to the point of, of an understanding with the target markets and you've been through the product phase, which is uh, extensive, that you need to measure this. You need to put those views back against your membership. You need to work to the complaint management process and review cycles and be able to elicit that information 
aggregate it fairly regularly to then feed back into your cycle for the next loop. So fundamentally, it's not set and forget. It's planning, putting this into place, but also the ongoing execution um, will continue. I'm interested in whether in whether you see these uh, requirements as more of a risk or an opportunity, and particularly for the major super funds, how do we see uh, how do we see that? Um, perhaps again, starting with Simon, what are, what's your take on that? Uh, well, it's definitely some risk aspect to it. I mean, you guys would know better than me, I guess, around the legal regulatory risks, and this imposes another another set of them. There's more ways of, of getting stuff wrong now from a legal regulatory perspective. Um, but what does it also mean? Well, if you get things wrong and it leads to financial detriment, well, that's going to, there's going to be reputational risks, and we've seen plenty of examples of that. And ultimately, it leads to poor outcomes for members. There's a whole lot of risks in there if you get this stuff wrong. But, but frankly, some of those things exist even without these obligations. You already have those reputational risks. You already have those uh, risks of poor member outcomes, which to me leads to the opportunity, which is to say, given we have these problems as an industry, now we have the benefit of a deadline, a regulatory sort of imperative that has thrust this more into people's mm -hmm. awareness. It's raised it through sort of the levels of priority uh, through organisations. So this is something now that you would imagine many trustee boards in a super context and more broadly across the financial services space should be thinking about. And it's not in silos. You mentioned the product area, perhaps not having the priority. Similarly, I'd walk into a client engagement area and that, that they would argue they don't have the priority as well. So this is multidisciplinary and thrusting it into the spotlight and putting a deadline on it saying, gosh, if there's any ever an opportunity to do it, now is the time, and the organisations that do it well, I think, will come out with higher skills, with better technology, with better client outcomes. They'll be better placed to deal with a whole raft of issues, not just this one. Mm. Yeah, there's a real, um, there's a real preventative aspect to it that you're preventing, as, as I think you put really well, you're preventing problems from arising that are happening today. So there's a real, there's a risk management element that's not bringing more risk. It's managing the risk that you've got today and i suppose that double dovetails coming back to my almost obsession about improved governance is just putting those systems in place to manage that to manage that risk and i suspect that it dovetails with 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 lee's observations from an operational point of view as well um, about really putting the detailed systems in place to identify information and to identify problems before they before they occur. The, the October date for next year also aligns to the updated RG271 around the internal dispute resolution process. There's complaints management requirements that come out of these DDO requirements that will also dovetail with the need in that complaint space. And, and I suppose that's a nice segue back to those major gaps or blind spots. So Given, given your, your background working with super funds, what are those major gaps or blind spots and, and how, do you, how do you anticipate funds might respond to these changes? Uh, one to me is focusing too much on the conscious or rational, if you like, aspects of um, members' decision-making. Uh, and this affects a whole raft of things. So it's around um, disclosure. If we think we tell people stuff, will they make an informed choice? Will they understand it? Well, maybe they will, but often they won't. 
if we ask them, even if they understand something, they might say yes, and they might genuinely believe that yes, they understand, but then they might overlook the fact that they don't, the stuff that they don't understand, they don't know what they don't know. Asking if they'll do something, like will you complete a budget? Will you invest in this new product? Now, yes, sir, yes, sir. you asked me if I'll complete a budget. Of course I will, that sounds like a great idea. When, mm. when you give me the budgeting tool, do I use it? Well, no, I don't. Oh, I'm too busy. I'll do it next month. Um, and you see that all over the place, giving people different investment options, and then ultimately they don't they don't do it. So there's there's a chunk in there I think about focusing too much on that rational level, and there's missing the submerged sort of larger chunk of the iceberg of what's actually driving people's decisions and actions. And that's I think coming through what ASIC is saying, but I think is what I often see as a gap in funds generally. So that would be one of the two things I would I'd focus on. And the second one, I think, is the idea that good intentions are enough. If we've got good intentions, and often I walk into teams, and yes, they definitely have good intentions about trying to help members, not in every case, of course, and we've seen egregious examples where it's not the case, but in many cases, I think they genuinely are trying to do the right thing. But ASIC points out, I forget whether it's in the consultation paper, regulatory guide, or where it is, but they say, look, detriment can happen intentionally or it can happen inadvertently. Mm-hmm. And that's I'm often seeing the inadvertent aspects where people are trying to do the right thing. So, for example, we think it's in the member's best interest to consolidate their super. They can simplify their financial circumstances. They might be able to save some fees. Yes, that makes sense. But then the communication might say, um, did you know many people have got multiple superannuation funds? You should consolidate to save fees or, or words to that effect. And what effectively you're doing is you're giving people a difficult choice and then you're giving them a social norm. You're saying, but what do other people do? What other people do is they seem, other people seem not to worry about this. They've all got multiple accounts as well. So we're focusing on the rational aspect, meanwhile nudging them the wrong way with the social the social norm in this case. And, that, and then there's plenty of those sorts of examples, which I think is it's, they're just they're blind spots because they're not intentional, but they're not actually helping the member. They're not actually aligning with what that team might then be trying to do to help the member. Yeah, yeah. And 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 Lee, from from the operational perspective, um, what sort of what sort of blind spots or gaps have you observed? Um, I, I mean, I spoke already around the repeatability. I think underestimating that um, will be will be troublesome. Um, and I guess f- f- uh, moving out of the just the obligatory requirement, there's those that will meet the product um, mapping. Uh, and the choice information there. There's also, you know, what what happens with the outliers? What is then also the obligation with your existing membership around um, how they align to the products that they are currently in, and um, and what uh, what uh, what social responsibility do you have when they call your contact centre to engage in those conversations around that? So um, the, the obligation obviously is for um, new products from from the point in time going forwards but ultimately you you have a measure and a view of this membership and do you do you utilize that also as an additional customer piece to engage with those other members yeah yeah and i think i'd i'd almost from my perspective almost bring those your your comments together and say what i've observed is too often with product development there's not a not that kind of whole of business approach that often product development is being driven by addressing a particular problem and it can be sometimes that people are not stopping to think about the member engagement consequences uh, let, let alone let alone the impact of the particular member engagement 
consequences that Simon's talked about, or they're not thinking about operational impacts or potentially others. And this does have, th those are the kind of the gaps. And I think there's a real opportunity here um, for funds to take that wider perspective and think through think through the decision, their decision. Well, in fact, it's going to be an obligation. <laughs> it's going to be an obligation, but it's an opportunity um, at, the, at the same time. Um, Simon, have you seen any specific examples of problems? If you go onto Wikipedia, you'll probably find 250 million billion sort of biases and distortions in people's decision making. But frankly, I mean, what are the big ticket things that are relevant for a, a major super fund, for example, or other financial institutions more generally? And in the case of superannuation, surely the biggest ticket of the uh, of the distortions is people's propensity to be influenced by default options. So we, we know at a high level, people are often taking a default fund within a fund and then taking a default default investment option. But the defaults don't stop there. There's there's defaults often all through a, the way the product functions, the way the client is engaged with. And there's been a couple of examples. So one, I think, that came out last week <clears throat> was um, a number of funds being lambasted by the regulator, I think, in this case, um, by having a default arrangement whereby members who were uh, either applying, well, they're applying for some type of insurance product, and if they didn't specify whether they're a smoker or a non-smoker, they were defaulted into the smoker category. Mm. Uh, for example, now is that member's best interest? W what are the other alternatives? Could we have defaulted them into an intermediate? I mean, there's a, there's a range of solutions there, but the power of the default can then lead to all the non-smokers, which are going to presumably be the vast majority of people generally, um, into a poor outcome. And to give you another one, and I saw this with a specific a client. I'm not sure whether they've had any sort of there's been any public rep repercussions of it, um, but it, it was the circumstance where. Um, members have chosen a range of investments through through accumulation phase. So they've been act actively in involved in this case in making uh, investment choices. They come to deaccumulation and they're going to draw a pension, but they haven't specified where that pension is going to be drawn from. So the fund needs to have a default arrangement. Say if, we, if they haven't told us, where do we draw the funds from? And in this case, the default arrangement was, well, we're going to pick choose sequentially from one fund to the next, and we're going to start with the lowest risk Funds. So we're going to start with your cash, and then we're going to move into your bonds. And and in the absence of also having a default rebalancing arrangement, what that's going to mean is that the 90-year-old who's then exhausted all of their investments ends up with a 100% allocation to some emerging emerging markets or the sort of <laughs> private equity or some high-risk fund at the very point in their life cycle where presumably they should have higher liquidity and lower risk. So that that's the sort of thing I think would probably be the the first thing on my list. Actually, actually, Simon, there's been a bit of talk recently about um, members changing this in their investment options at a time of market volatility that we're facing at the moment. And there has been some suggestion that, you know, perhaps members are given too much ability to, to change investment options and that there's been, for example, a big movement back into to cash and more conservative options right now. Which might be might not be the best option, uh, and sort of perhaps interested in your um, in your take on that discussion as well. Well, that's it's almost like I've asked you to. That's almost like a Dorothy Dixer. We didn't <laughs> plan that, but actually, that's it. Really links quite closely into my second point, which re really is around what I would call frictions. So we know generally people are pretty damn inactive in their decision making, but in some cases they are making decisions to their detriment, like in those sort of cases where we see people switching to cash and then maybe staying in cash for a long period of time thereafter, and that's mm. probably not going to align with their long-term interests. 
So there's a challenge at both have at both ends of the spectrum of having too many frictions or too many. When I say frictions, I mean points where there's sort of effort and engagement required in a decision making process. So here it might be barriers to, to people uh, applying for additional insurance that they need or to making a claim or to any sort of process where they have to. I don't know, I have to put in my tax file number. I have to go and find out what's all these sort of steps. So removing frictions and understanding the impact on people's advice to help them to help remove some of those barriers to getting good outcomes. But to link to, to your question specifically, sometimes it's actually helpful to put an extra friction into a process. Yeah. So in that particular case, and I think ASIC talks about this in one of their guides, if, for example, we have a member coming to our website who uh, we know is perhaps at the older age range, perhaps we know their risk profile, we have some indication their risk profile is at the more conservative end, and we see them switching to the high growth option. In, in this case, so it's the reverse risk profile, but it's the same concept. They're switching to something that's inappropriate for them. What can we do about that? Well, we don't necessarily want to take choices away from people. Uh, so we're not trying to lead to a paternalistic outcome where we're sort of railroading in, in everyone into the, into the one option. People don't tend to like that. But we need to make sure that we're trying to put some barriers in them making inappropriate choices. So it might be that if we know something about this person, can we then prompt them instead of automatically accepting their request to go into that high growth fund in this particular case, or maybe switch to cash in another case? Can we then prompt them to say, actually, um, why don't you ring our call center and have a chat to someone? Because it looks like this might not be in your long term interest. The choice is still there. We just put a little friction in the process. And that's uh, that's one of the things ASIC has on their radar. Try not to, to remove um, options, although maybe in some cases some products through some channels might not no longer be appropriate. But thinking more more thoroughly about or, or more more detail about how those sort of behavioural barriers can impact people's choices and ultimately their outcomes. Yeah, yeah, very very interesting and uh, very very topical at the moment. I think. Yeah, completely uh, agree. Um, Lee, uh, have you from from that operational uh, perspective? Have you seen some specific example of problems arising as a result of, let's call it, poor product design? When we first spoke to this, the thing that came to mind is in the daily operations, you know, bringing your operational doers, your project people, compliance people, how uh, glued are the product people to yeah. everything that's happening in that space? Mm. and um, again, like a lot of changes in operational delivery with technologies, with outsourcing, how those roles are set up and viewed. Um, you know, do they, does a product person sit in a marketing department or is that strategy have to align a lot closer to the delivery and the governance? Um, in our ideal world, they are already aligned, but we know that, that people will will have challenges with that. So for me, um, you know, this is eternally holistic and the ongoing big pillars of, of organisations need to make sure they are um, joined at the hip in terms of understanding what this means. Yeah, yeah. I mean, look, that, that comes back again to my governance obsession. Um, uh, and one of the one of the better, I would say, better operating product departments that I'm aware of has has a leader who's quite influential within the organisation. And I know there they've made that the organisation has also, for example, made that person responsible for overseeing a lot of remediation. 
and member complaints. Now it's a slightly different issue, but it's showing it's showing how you can you can sort of more holistically involve product in the business to make sure that I think the kind of things you're alluding to don't happen. And I suspect uh, as the result of this, we will see you know we will see organisations move increasingly in that direction, hopefully, <laughs> and, and that would be great for members, I think. Um, so, 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 Lee, from your perspective, what what questions do you think the fund trustees should be asking to make sure that the funds are across these issues? Yeah, I guess for, for those that haven't started down this journey, you know, the identifying their impacted products, um, considering their choice products, the extent of it, and obviously the the broader that product set, there's a lot more work that needs to happen. Some people will have moved on from those initial stages and will be in in the doing phase. So, um, you know, that's why we're, we're having this discussion today is QMV and, and BFA to because from from the upfront discussion through to where are you at in the cycle of delivery of implementation um, of critically pulling those apart, knowing that there's a lot of downstream outputs and outcomes that um, need to be thought about upfront. Um, Simon, do you have anything to add to that? Yeah, well, I mean, there's there's a lot going on, on here, but if I was to narrowly focus in on sort of my um, piece of the pie, the behavioural finance stuff and thinking about how product design and distribution align specifically with sort of those uh, psychological aspects of people's behaviour, I, I wonder whether the best question a trustee could ask, perhaps ask the uh, person who's involved or person who's managing the DDO response, uh, would be something like, give me 10 examples of how we've allowed for the fact that our members' conscious, uh, our members' choices and actions are often driven by things beyond their conscious control. All right, so I've deliberately gone for ten because I reckon I could come up with fifty, and I'm sort of thinking if if they if they can't come up with ten, then that they're not they don't understand the issues, they haven't been or haven't put the effort into it, and if they start talking about things like well we've surveyed our members. Uh, we've given them lots of information. Uh, they understand and all that all that sort of stuff. I began now. That's an indication that they've missed the point. They're looking at the tip of the iceberg again about sort of that giving them information and getting them to tell us what they need and what they want and what they understand, which is definitely part of the puzzle. But I would argue that sorry, it's not just me. It's the decision making research more generally. There's a lot of stuff that goes beyond that, and that sort of response to that question would indicate that that part of the submerged iceberg is being overlooked and that would raise red flags for me if I was the trustee. Yeah. And and look, and I would add just to round the circle out, I'd add uh, just simply as as a trustee, do you think you've got the right amount of oversight over over product related activities? Um, do you have delegations in in place and that they're documented? Um, you know, is the product team appropriately resourced? Um, and and do they have access to all of the all of the uh, expert consultants that they might need to have access to, and and finally um, is the product operational distribution staff like is training in place for those? So those would be some of the things I would be. These are the questions I think uh, trustees should also be asking. Yeah, and I think just listening to what you've said there and some of the comments earlier on, I, I wondered. To what extent we should be asking or trustees should be asking about how well are all these groups working together have we got all the right people in the room because frankly the product people can't do it by themselves the technology people can't the governance people can't everyone's got to be on the same page and everyone's got to play 
I guess, their role in, in bringing it all together. Uh, there was there were furious nods of agreement there from everybody. Um, <laughs> well, thanks for your uh, thanks both of you for your observations. And at BFA, BFA and QMV, we'd be very happy to um, help conduct in-house workshops at your organisation to discuss issues that apply specifically to you, as well as the the shape of your response. Um, and if you've already started um, on the journey, uh, we can also identify gaps. We can carry out a sanity check. And to, to reiterate, we believe that by working together, um, we do have a unique range of skills that make us well placed to assist you, whether it's strategically or whether it's to help you implement, um, implement the plan that you've already started uh, to develop. Um, so with that, we'd love to hear from you. Um, Simon can be contacted at simon.russell at bfin.com.au, uh, Lee at leejohnson at qmvsolutions.com, and me, David Reckenberg at dreckenberg at qmvsolutions.com. Thank you.